Good morning, everyone. I think we should start. I'm Dorothy Cole. Most of you probably know me, but just in case some of you don't. My husband, Brad, presented uh, last week, and both of us have been very interested in the topic of the cosmic conflict for several years now. And I'd also like to introduce my two children. Caleb is 11 and James is 9. They are going to help their dad with the microphone and the recording today. Our daughter, Christina, she's in her first year of college, so unfortunately she can't be here. She's at PUC. So I'm happy that we have an opportunity to continue this class on the cosmic conflict that Sigvi started. So last week, Brad talked about the cosmic conflict in the Old Testament, and he, he mentioned that Satan was relatively absent in the Old Testament. He's only, been, he's only mentioned three times. And uh, in today's world, it doesn't seem like we talk that much about Satan either. We, we don't really like to talk about that topic, other than maybe associated with Halloween, Ouija boards, and, and, and that, those kinds of things. But the New Testament is quite different in regards to that. Uh, according to John, Satan is the absolute ruler of this earth. And uh, John says, we know that we belong to God, even though the whole world is under the rule of the evil one. He also says in Revelation that he says, and it, which is the lamb-like beast that speaks like a dragon, deceived all the people living on earth by means of the miracles which it was allowed to perform in the presence of the first beast. So this element of deception seems to be um, very important to John. And Sigvi mentioned repeatedly that uh, the beast imitates Christ. He mentioned uh, the beast who had a mortal wound as, as an allusion to, to Christ's death on the cross. So this, this, um, this topic of imitation, I think, um, is very important. Here again uh, in Thessalonians, Paul says, the man of sin will come with the power of Satan. He will use everything that God disapproves of to deceive those who are dying those who refuse to love the truth that would save them. And of course you might say, well, but we love the truth, so that won't happen to us. But then uh, Jesus tells us false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. So since we don't want to be victims of deception, it seems important enough for us to understand the difference, the difference between God and his kingdom and the difference between the other side. So there are uh, some questions today that I would like to explore. Basically, what does God's kingdom look like and where can it be found? And what are its principles in contrast to the principles of the enemy? How did Jesus fight the war in the cosmic conflict? And how are we involved in the cosmic conflict today? So let's start by what does uh, God's kingdom look like? Even before Jesus ever came on the scene, John the Baptist was talking about the nearness of the kingdom. He said, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It is interesting that right after Jesus' baptism, the first thing that happens was that he uh, uh, went into the de desert and was tempted by the devil. And one of the 
temptations of the devil was that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. The devil said to him, I will give you all the power and glory of these kingdoms. All of it has been given to me, and I will give it to anyone. And, and I give it to anyone I please. So it almost seems like that uh, Satan wanted to trick Jesus. He's giving him the whole world. Isn't that what Jesus came for? He came to, to get the whole world back, to save the world. And Satan says, I give you all of those kingdoms. But Jesus didn't want it in this way. He wanted to get the world back in a different way. And then Jesus goes out and he pretty much preaches the same message, it seems like, as John the Baptist. It, it was, it's almost word for word. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease. When Jesus gives his first public sermon, he goes on to more clearly define the laws of this heavenly kingdom. And here is where we find out that its rules are 180 degrees opposite to the rules that the people at that time were used to living in and we are used to living in. So if one of you, if one of the, somebody in the audience could read this, this is the message paraphrase, but I thought I'd choose something fresh. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you embrace by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart, put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. So, thank you. Jesus uh, continues to explain the kingdom, and he goes even further than this, and he's not really making it any easier for people. He says, but I tell you not to oppose an evil person. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn your other cheek to him as well. And then he goes on with several parables, and I'm just picking out a couple here. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a farmer who throws seeds indiscriminately upon the path, rocks, thorns, and good soil. And it is like fishermen who throw out, throw out a net indiscriminately and catch good and bad fish. But Jesus doesn't stop here. As his first sermon uh, continues, he's really becoming quite radical. And this is probably one of the most radical teachings of Jesus, the kingdom of enemy love. But I tell you this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you will show that you are children of your Father in heaven. 
He makes his sun rise on people whether they are good or evil. He lets rain fall on them whether they are just or unjust. If you love only those who love you, do you deserve a reward? Are you doing anything remarkable if you welcome only your friends? Everyone does that. That's why you must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And this word, basically, perfection, Christian perfection or Christian maturity, is to be like God. If you want to be like God, you love your enemies. That is the one distinguishing factor here. But um, Jesus doesn't only define the laws of the kingdom. He also tells us something about, his, about its location. So he tells us, where is the kingdom of God? He answers that question. So um, if we could ask Jesus today, where is the kingdom of God? When is your kingdom coming, Jesus? What, what do you think he would say? It's within you. You are all prepared, yes. <laughs> so the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And his answer was, the kingdom of God does not come in such a way as to be seen. No one will say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And the New Living Translation says, the kingdom of God is already among you. So I like that translation too. And that's kind of actually quite important for maybe us Adventists who are, have been historically very focused on the second coming. You know, it is really exactly that question. Uh, when the kingdom of, just like the Pharisees said, when the kingdom of God would come? When is it coming? And, of course, I would not say that there is no future kingdom, but which one would Jesus want us to focus on? After, after Jesus goes on introducing the kingdom of heaven more to us, he actually goes on to demonstrate it in his own life. Jesus essentially lives out the kingdom. And that is precisely, I will, I will make the point, it's precisely how he fights the war in this kingdom. There are many distinguishing marks that Jesus shows us, such as healing the sick, feeding the hungry, acting consistently counterculturally. Um, when he defended the oppressed, he defended women, foreigners, lepers, prostitutes, alcoholics, even possibly people who got cheating, uh, who got rich by cheating. We are told that he ate with tax collectors and, and drunkards. Um, but I'd like to bring out one major quality, one fundamental difference that distinguishes the kingdom of God from the kingdom of the world, a.k.a. I would say Satan's kingdom. And this central characteristic is just as radical as enemy love but perhaps even more difficult for us to understand. And Jesus demonstrated it faithfully all the way. His disciples never completely understood it, even until after his death. And the question is, do we completely, as Christians today, understand this uh, fundamental difference? And I have a story to illustrate it, if one of you would read the story. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with their sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? he asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit on the places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered to them, to them saying, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh yes, 
They replied, We are able. Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my body and on my lap. My Father who has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. And do you mind reading going on? Sure. When the ten of the disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rules in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man cannot be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the king of the universe came to serve. Jesus' entire ministry uh, demonstrated the central kingdom principle of unselfish, other-focused love. Just read one more passage. They came to Capernaum, and after going indoors, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you arguing about on the road? But they would not answer him, because on the road they had been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Jesus sat down and called the twelve disciples and said unto them, Whoever wants to be the first among you, himself last of all. Whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. So whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. Jesus does not only live out the kingdom. He also asks us to live out the kingdom. And uh, my husband likes to use uh, this next slide. And so some of, us, some of you might have already seen this, but for wo- those of you who haven't, I'd like to get your thoughts. Um, it's about the authority of the kingdom. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything. I'm sorry, that he had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So... So what? What do you think he did? What would you do if you had all authority? Pull down fire on him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the first answer was right. <laughs> he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Can the king of the universe be trusted with all authority? Can God be trusted with all authority? And was that one of the questions in the cosmic conflict? And he asks us, I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. You then should wash one another's feet also. But the descent of God in human form goes even further than doing a menial servant task The king of the universe humbles himself all the way to his own death. There's a text here in Philippians. The attitude you should have is the one that Jesus Christ had. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, 
his death on the cross. He walked the path of obedience. Obedience to what? To whom? In another place, we read about Jesus' faithfulness. Was he not faithful and obedient to to the principles of his kingdom, he himself? There's an interesting verse that I may be over-interpreting, um, and, and you, can, you can correct me if you, if you think that's the case. Jesus talks about when he comes as king. He says, For the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his deeds. I assure you that there are some here who will not die until they have seen the Son of Man come as king. And most, it's mostly interpreted as uh, that some are here who will not die, that those are perhaps uh, James, John, and Peter who s- saw Jesus during the transfiguration. But isn't it at least interesting that Jesus was wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe? Why did it have to be a crown of thorns, a crown? Why did it have to be a purple robe, a symbol of kingship? And notice that the, ac- the accusation against him said, the king of the Jews. Jesus was a king, a king in his kingdom of unselfishness, a king with a crown of thorns and a purple robe of mockery. He demonstrated the path of someone who faithfully follows the rules of his kingdom Now let's look at some of the characteristics of the ruler of this world. If somebody would read it, it would be great. If anybody, any volunteers? Lots of volunteers. (laughs) And maybe with an emphasis on the I. How you are fallen from the heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who are weakened, you who weaken the nation. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation in the farthest of the sides of the moon. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And we have some more descriptions. Um, in, uh, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy, he must be mature in faith so that he will not swell up with pride and be condemned as the devil was. And in Revelation, we are told the beast forced all the people, small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to have a mark placed on their right hands and on their foreheads. This uh, uh, section here in Isaiah, Isaiah 14, um, many people attribute that, that uh, Satan, that this is talking about Satan, not everyone does, but it says, because you've ruined your country and killed your own people, you will not be buried like other kings. And then Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And Sigi made the point that it really says when he speaks the lie. And there's actually a Jewish translation which I could not find. Um, I, I don't think it's free on the internet. So it says the father of the lie. And 
we talked about that last time. What was the lie? Uh, Sigby actually talked about that. What was the lie, Satan's original lie? Wasn't it that God was selfish, that he could not be trusted? Ellen White has a, a good section here in education. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish, and he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claims is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of, all, of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. So it was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness. How is that for atonement theology? An illustration of unselfishness. Ellen White also says this, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. It was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security, and in the councils of heaven it was decided that time must be given for Satan to develop these principles, which were the foundation of his system of government. He had claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. So we've seen that there are two contestants um, in the cosmic conflict. One is the dragon who deceives the whole world. One is the slaughtered lamb in the center of the throne. Very vivid images from Revelation. And we know that the issues in the cosmic conflict are, is God trustworthy and what are his methods? Can he be trusted with authority? And what are the methods of the enemy? And this famous verse here, Philip said to, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, that is all we need. Jesus answered, for a long time I have been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. I have made you known to those you gave me out of the world. I'd like to review just in a table the differences between the two kingdoms, just kind of summarizing. We have the kingdom of the world then, and we have the kingdom of God. We have the dragon and the slaughtered lamb. The dragon says, about the dragon, it is said, you were determined to climb up to heaven and to place your throne above the highest stars. But about Jesus, it is said, instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. 
from the beginning, Satan was a murderer and never, has never been on the side of truth. But Jesus is the good shepherd who is willing to die for his sheep. Pride leads to me first and survival of the fittest principle. But God's principle is self-sacrificial, other-centered love. I will kill you so I can live. I will die so you can live. Satan uses fear, force, coercion, and lies. God uses persuasion by the truth and freedom. Satan uses secrecy and deception. God uses revelation and transparency to convince. I'd like to just play this YouTube clip. Um, it's by Greg Boyd, who uh, is a pastor and uh, theologian. He teaches at Bethel University, and he very much has a, a similar view of the world. Um, he actually wrote a book, uh, God at War. He also wrote a famous, pretty famous book. It was a New York bestseller. I have it in the front here, The Myth of a Christian Nation. But I just want you to listen to that. It's only a couple minutes long. Um, the given of all of these uh, of, of these uh, social institutions that I think are corrupted is that they have power over other people. There, there's a what we calls the dominion system, and it's very contrary to Christ's model uh, of uh, what I have called elsewhere power under. Uh, it's it's uh, service, and whenever uh, any institution, including churches. Um, begin to exercise power over people in coercive ways, um, that becomes something demonic, um, where you in any way dehumanize another person or uh, act and treat them in ways that don't reflect their unsurpassable worth, uh, as is evidenced by the fact that Christ died for them, you're dealing with something that is now going at cross-purposes with God. And it's to that degree, I would, I would say demonic, and there's always a pull in that direction. Whereas the model of leadership in the kingdom is servant leadership. You're there to serve. Which doesn't mean you don't have authority, but it means that the authority isn't demanded or coerced. And the authority is, is, is your way of serving others. You have a gift for leadership, and you serve others by just being, by exercising that gift. But there's always a demonic pull to begin to feed yourself with that authority, and uh, uh, then use it for yourself for self-purposes, self-glorification or whatever, as opposed to using it to, to further the kingdom. So you just have to be aware of that and hold up at all times Christ as the model of what leadership in the kingdom is. And, uh, and just be aware that there's always warfare that uh, is working against you. Uh, yeah, uh, prayer is a foundational, if not the foundational, uh, weapon of war for, for uh, Paul says that in, in Ephesians 6. Um, and I mean, I, I, this is, I think, really the, the classic text on the, the whole topic that we're, we're discussing here is Ephesians 6, uh, where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and authorities in dark places. And uh, then he talks about the weapons of the warfare that we're, that we're to take on. And so we always have to remember in, in all of our dealings that uh, when there's disagreements, and as there always are, and there conflicts, as, as there always are, we have to always understand that there are powers that are trying to play us. And the main way they play us is by 
influencing me to think you're the enemy, and vice versa. Um, whereas in fact, the enemy is neither you or I, it's the powers that are trying to influence both you and I to make each other enemies. Um, the conflicts are normal, but you can work through those in Christ-like ways, in ways that reflect love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, that everything you do be done in love. And, and that really is, I think, you know, a way to burn through the powers is to commit to always living and interacting in ways that are consistent with, with Calvary-like love, uh, Christ-like love, where everything you do and say, even when you're in an argument, reflects the fact that the other person was worth Jesus dying for. Uh, that's our most fundamental kingdom commitment. And uh, if at any time we're interacting in ways where your unsurpassable worth that was ascribed to you on Calvary is not being reflected, it's time to stop and say, take a break and let's cool our tool and pray about this, get our orientation uh, uh, rightly centered on the kingdom, and I'll come back and discuss this uh, conflict. Praying together is an uh, uh, incredible way to, to burn through the clouds of oppression uh, that are on all institutions. Uh, living in Christ-like love burns through the clouds that are uh, oppressing institutions. And then uh, all of the things that Paul lists in, in Ephesians 6, uh, that we're in the belt of truth, knowing who you are in Christ, remembering what is true, what the, what, you know, what the purpose of the world is, what the purpose of our life is, um, and knowing the word, and all those things are ways of, of combating the powers. So what do you think of that? That should be our message, and that is... Um that is the message of the Adventist Church in its, in its origin, the conflict between the, power, the powers used on one side as describing the evil powers and, and, and our God. Just, oh yes. This is all very nice, but we've got to run a church. And uh, how do you... Uh, how do you screen people so that, uh, and how would you set up the criteria for membership based on this basic principle of the kingdom of servanthood? Uh, well, if you show yourself a servant and then you remember it, if not, you can't be I mean, How would you run the church this way? Any ideas? Any comments? I totally agree with what you're saying, Dorothy. The film was, was wonderful. I may choose to do this, but the other person isn't. And something within me responds to the other person with their spirit, which isn't the spirit that I choose to. And it's off. And this occurs over and over and over. Um, And so, Jerry's question is, how do you run a church? I suspect when most people come in, they're there for servant leadership. It's just how long does it stay that way? Um, there's no question of modeling, the servant leadership model. Um, are they taught what it means in the difficult situations of life? I don't want to get the discussion off on something, but just to take a text that's powerfully misused. Ephesians 5.21, wives submit to your husbands. Uh, 
that's not used in terms of servant leadership at all, at least as I hear it. And so the question, I think, is a very serious question. How do, do we reconcile this when we use the uh, phrase we often use, and that is the hospital church is hospital for sinners? Well, you know, it, it seems like, and there are several points that have been brought up, but it seems like I'm hearing maybe one thing, maybe it's not effective. Can this be effective? Is that perhaps uh, the underlying question? Is the kingdom of God, that servant leadership, is it long-term effective? Or does it, does it always seem to break apart? Um, the, only, the only thing that I've ever been able to read that I think has given me comfort with that idea, um, aside from the issue of forgiveness, and the question of how does forgiveness come into our hearts? How does that happen? Which I think is a very important question and it makes humility. But the other um, concept that I've been learning about is something called forbearance. And that sort of goes, as I understand, beyond forgiveness when the other person is not going to cooperate and you try, um, then there's, I think there's something where you sort of just give the issue to God and let God take care of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's how I'm understanding coherence. And I think there will be lots of problems, you know, living that way. And I think that is that is one thing to remember. This is this is not an easy way. And in the end, we'll talk a little bit about um, faithful, faithfulness versus effectiveness. It may not be a very effective way always either. Yes. Um, I just wanted to respond to a comment that was talking about how do we make this work in a church setting? And I think the real problem with that is that you're asking how do we make this system work and it's the idea that if it is God's system that I think that the if anything we should be asking how do we make the church work to fit this system because trying to recreate the system is trying to recreate and say that you don't really believe that the system that God made to be beautiful we're trying to help it along and we're saying we don't believe that if we actually live this way that it would work Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble. Okay. So again, the question, does it work? Is it effective? One, one, yes, Gary. I was recently, uh, I'm at a VA hospital. Physician work at the VA hospital and recently was chosen to go to a leadership conference. At a leadership conference, the VA hospital is a secular institution, government institution. A leadership conference was uh, run by a secular group as well. And up on the board, started out with two R's, uh, results, relationships. And talked about the focus on results, but that you can't get there without relationships. Later in this discussion, I shared this with Dorothy earlier, but uh, later in this discussion, uh, this exact question came up. You know, this all sounds good, but when the rubber meets the road, you know, how do you deal with people who really don't want to interact with you in a positive way? And lo and behold, this guy quoted um, Jack Provencia. He's been Jack Provencia. And uh, wrote this wonderful graph 
up on the board that was there from Jasper Bunch and discussed the difference between emotion and will. And that your emotion of fondness is different than your will of kindness. And that your will is where your character is. And it dawned on me that here in this secular institution, being taught by a secular kind of guy up front, he was teaching this group how to love your enemy. And not that it was how to love your enemy so much because it's a good thing to do, but because that's the way to get to results. So when when someone mentions it just doesn't work, it's a nice idea, it may not work, what dawned on me is the secular world is figuring this out already. The secular world is moving forward, and it will probably drag the church along too. <laughs> uh, that what works is loving your enemy. One might say, when Jesus died, it didn't look like it worked. So Jesus' death seemed pretty unsuccessful to, to most people. Maybe one of our problems is that we think the church and the kingdom are the same thing. Mm-hmm. We equate the two. The kingdom of God, I think, is much bigger than the church. Yeah, very good point. The church is a vehicle. If, if our objective in the church is simply to increase numbers of our group, then you set certain criteria for entry, and we have done that. We have 28 of them, statements of belief, and if you agree to those, you can be a member. Um, but I think if we really understand the principles of the kingdom, it will totally transform how we do church, it will totally transform how we do mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, our evangelistic uh, efforts will be entirely restructured uh, and, and use totally different approaches. Um, is it effective? I think that's something only each one of us can can decide and implement in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether we work in the church system or in a secular system or wherever we are, makes no difference, really. I have a choice of whether I am going to model the principles of the kingdom in the area of influence that God has given me or not. And, and that's really all I can do. As you were speaking, and I was thinking, um, I thought of Jesus, he's our model. He had 12. And one of them was part of the entire process, beginning to end, but hanged himself. Mm-hmm. Jesus died, those who followed him. And one of his disciples said, don't even hang me that way. I'm not worthy. Um, so I really think that it, he gives us that personal choice through the power of the Holy Spirit to follow and to love and to give and to be patient. And the judgment is not up to us. The weeding is not up to us, but the loving is. Mm-hmm. So I just want to briefly uh, cover early Christianity and then what happened to Christianity and then our church today. So um, we only have a few minutes. I hope we can get through that. So you've probably looked at the slide now because it's been up for a while. But uh, this it seems like that the early Christians actually got it. They actually understood that um, uh, there was no one in the group who was in need. People would give of themselves uh, for others. 
But then things changed. Uh, early on, uh, the motto or Tertullian observed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But then under, under Constantine, um, things cha- changed dramatically. It was a significant turning point. Constantine was about to engage in this battle uh, of the Milvian Bridge in 312 when he supposedly saw this uh, sign, uh, saw Christ in a vision with the sign, hoc signo ic victor eris, which means by this sign you will conquer. And so he had the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek, the Chi and Rho, in, um, placed on the shields of, of his soldiers, and he won the battle. And so Constantine thought that um, his, his victory was due to the Christian God helping him. And he then legalized and mandated Christianity. I'm, I'm sure most of you uh, know, know this history. And it was really the first time that Christianity was associated uh, with violence. Charlemagne said, if there's any one of the Saxon people lurking among them unbaptized, if he scorns to come to baptism and stay a pagan, let him die. And we know of the crusades and so on, and we know of the torture in the Catholic Church. I looked up um, under Google Images, torture and church, and this was probably the mildest picture I could find. It's unbelievable. Uh, But... It, it was then actually um, thought that to help avoid eternal pain, torture and murder were justified. So what about the church today? Um, the slides I'm going to put up you know, are not meant to be offensive, uh, but I just feel that the imitation part is, is uh, really difficult and that it can sometimes be the church who becomes the actual vehicle of, uh, or a mouthpiece of, of the opposite side. And I think in our church today, there are two, fun, two views of Christianity which reflect two pictures of God. Here's a very famous um, reverend who said, you've got to kill the terrorists before the killing stops, and I'm for the president to chase them all over the world. If it takes 10 years, Blow them all away in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, those who kill by the sword, those who use a sword will be killed by the sword. That speaks for itself, the picture. And there's a large majority in our church who feel that way. I say church as the Christian, the Christian religion. Jesus said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Another pretty well-known evangelist, he wants his children to eat the best. He wants them to wear the best clothing. He wants them to drive the best cars. He wants them to have the best of everything, the health and wealth religion. Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay down and rest. Another quote here, I want you to just let a wave of intolerance wash over you. I want you to let a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. Our goal is a Christian nation. We have a biblical duty. We are called by God to conquer this country. 
But Jesus said, you have heard that the law of Moses says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. There's an interesting study on torture uh, that showed that 62% of white evangelicals felt that torture can often or sometimes be justified. And uh, these numbers here show that there's actually a relationship between church attendance and support for torture. And it's linear. 54, 54% of those who attend religious services every week feel that torture can often, or is some, at least sometimes, justified. And 42% of those, percent of those who never attend church is still you know, a pretty high number, but it seems to increase with church attendance. And I brought this book here, if you um, want to look at it, it's here up in the front. Uh, David Kinnaman's book, Unchristian, reveals surveyed results of young people ages 16 to 29 and what they, what they uh, feel about cr- how they perceive Christians. These were all outsiders, meaning they were not, uh, oops, not church goers. 85% of young people felt that Christians are hypocritical. thought that they were insensitive to others. 87% thought Christians are judgmental. 75% felt they are too involved in politics. And 91% say Christians are anti-homosexual. We talked about is it it effective? Is Christianity, is, is the way of Jesus something that works in our church? And um, it, it really, most of the time, doesn't work. And this, I, I feel like this quote by Yoder is, is very helpful for me to understand the difference between faithfulness and effectiveness. Yoder says, This vision of ultimate good being determined by faithfulness and not results is the point where we modern men get off. Again, The vision that ultimate good is determined by faithfulness and not its results, that is where we get off. Jesus was so faithful to the enemy love of God that it cost him all his effectiveness. He gave up every handle on history. The choice that he made in rejecting the crown and accepting the cross was the commitment to such a degree of faithfulness to the character of divine love that he was willing for its sake to sacrifice all effectiveness. Okay, It's not about it being effective. And we should not ever sacrifice being faithful to the principles of the kingdom of God in order to be effective. I think if we try to be effective, then we will automatically use the wrong methods. And Jesus, God, God in human form, demonstrated that by, you know, all the way to his death. And I think even if it would not have been effective, that was the way he was. That is just the way God is, a servant. This last slide is just this paradox between the cross and the fighter jets. And then I know it's late. If, if you need to go, that's fine. If you want to, I just thought this clip by, um, 
by Gandhi is is nice because it is actually another non it's a non Christian who perhaps understood the principles of God better than some of the Christians 